hey, good morning. That was much better than you gave Sam. <laughs> it's got you well trained. Hey, whether you are uh, visiting here, you're watching online, I've uh, been here forever and ever, I am glad that you're here and I'm excited what God has for us uh, over the next 30 minutes or so. Uh, we're in the middle of this series, we're really at the halfway point, uh, four out of eight weeks on this series titled Road Trip. And uh, if you have not been here the first three weeks, uh, or if this is your first time at River Ridge, basically what we're doing is we're looking at Jesus and the different conversations that he had as he traveled around the countryside, as he traveled and had these interactions with people. We're taking a look and saying, what can we learn about Jesus? What can we learn about conversations? What can we learn about ourselves as we look at these? And so we're really looking at a very wide variety of characters. Over the first three weeks, we looked at a scholar, we looked at a father, we looked at a son, we looked at a prostitute, and we met two Pharisees. And over the coming weeks, we're going to meet a millionaire, we're going to meet a screw-up, we're going to meet another Pharisee, and we're going to meet another guy who was trying to get rid of the church. But this morning, we have what I think is a pretty fascinating story, and a little bit odd, uh, but one of the things that I would encourage you to do as we're doing this uh, series of road trip is to pick up one of these uh, bookmarks in the lobby, which is 40 stories about Jesus that everyone should read, and just to read five stories each week to go along with the road trip. I encourage you to do that because this morning we have a pretty wacky story, all right? We're going to look at a story where Jesus meets a guy who is possessed by a demon and then performs an exorcism. Huh? Does that sound exciting or not? Right? I mean, and if you're here for the first time and you're walking in here like, there's coffee, there's donuts, there's a band, this is weird, and you go, what's next? I think they're going to pull out the stakes and the strychnine. We're not going to do that this week, but depending how this week goes, that might be next week. So just be forewarned. Uh, so we're going to be in Mark chapter 5 if you want to turn there. Uh, but as I mentioned, we're going to look at this guy who is demon-possessed. And we're going to talk a little bit about demon possession and that kind of thing and, and an exorcism. And as you think about that, it, it's likely that it conjures up things in your mind. You know, when I say demon possession and exorcism, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? You know, for some of you, it's that movie The Exorcist, right, where there's that little girl and then her head spins a full 360 around. I mean, that just freaks me out, right? Some of you are picturing a scene from a movie, won't say what movie, where there's a little angel on this shoulder and a little devil on this shoulder, and the angel is saying, you know, and the devil is saying the opposite, and, you know, there's cartoons, and is that kind of what demon possession is? You know, when we talk about demons, the honest truth is that some of you are going, I'm not sure I believe that. Like, I'm good with God, I'm good with Jesus, I'm good with angels, Satan probably, but demons, that's a little out of my comfort zone. I think I'll just look the other way. You know, or maybe even put them in the, the fantasy category. You know, you've got, you know, demons and tooth fairies and Santa Claus and Easter bunnies and stuff like that. But what we're going to do is we're going to have a look at this passage and we're going to see the realness of what happened and what this demon possession looked like at the time of Jesus. Now, in the 28 minutes to come, there are interesting things that we'll see about demons, but I don't want us to get lost in the trees and kind of forget the bigger story. 
Because what this story is about is it's about us and the struggles that we have as well. Because there are definitely times in our lives where we get stuck, where we don't feel like life goes our way. You know, there's this phrase, face your demons. You know, is this a face your demons sort of message? Well, in one sense, yes, and in one sense, no. But, you know, when we say face your demons, what that means is to confront the difficulties in your life. And so are we going to be confronting literal demons because we're demon-possessed? Probably not for most of us, or maybe any of us. But it is going to be a great walk through this passage to say, what are the things that bring me down? What are the things that leave me hopeless? What are the things that leave me helpless where I go through life and I'm like, man, I'm struggling. Because what we're going to see that was true of this man is also true of us as we deal with the hopeless and the helplessness that sometimes we feel in life. So as I said, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. Uh, if you brought a Bible, open it up. If you don't have a Bible, you can actually use the Riverage app and click to a Bible there. And if you don't like either of those options, it will be on the screen behind me. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this story and just uh, how much life it has and action and characters and intrigue and, and in a sense confusion as well. Uh, but I pray that as we look at this passage, uh, that you would bring it to life and that we would understand some things intellectually about the whole spiritual other sort of world, uh, but that we would also understand our own lives. What are the steps that you want us to take to be more in love with you, to be more of a follower of you? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says this, it says, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, what this was is the Lake of Galilee, basically on the west bank, the west side of the Lake of Galilee was a primarily Jewish area in religion and faith and race and so forth. And on the right side was a non-Jewish area inhabited mainly by people of Greeks, so non-Jews. And that's going to become important. So Jesus is on, in the Gerasenes, which is in the non-Jewish area segment of this countryside. And it says this, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So a guy comes out of the tombs, and he says he has an unclean spirit. We're going to learn a little bit later that he is demon-possessed. That's the word that is used for it. Now, here is a description of this guy. And as I read this, Try and kind of visualize what it would be like landing on the shore if you were one of the disciples. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones." I mean, can you imagine coming ashore as one of the disciples? And this is out of the Gospel of, of Mark. In the Gospel of Luke, it says that he was also naked. I mean, can you imagine you pull the boat up with Jesus? Like, yeah, oh, this looks like a good place to stop. And there's this guy, and he's naked, and he's bleeding, and he's got scars, and he's babbling on, and he's huge and looks strong. And you're going, 
there's got to be a better place on the beach to land than this, right? Like, what is going on here? And it says about him, it says that they couldn't bind him. They couldn't shackle him down. He was so strong and so powerful. And I got to think about that. I'm like, who wants that job? Like, who wants to try and tackle the naked strong guy and put a chain on him? Not me. I'm not signing up for that job. I mean, just the, the craziness of this situation is amazing. So it says he's demon-possessed. So here's a question that I want to just take a bit of an aside and answer. And, and the question is this. What does it mean to be possessed by a demon? You know, can we be possessed by a demon? You know, sometimes, you know, we go through stories in the Bible, and sometimes I'll ask this question, or if you've ever been in a small group, somebody will often ask this question when you're doing uh, Jesus interaction stories or Old Testament stories. They'll say, who do you identify with in this story? Who do you identify with? And so are we supposed to identify with the demon-possessed man? We say, yeah, I'm naked sometimes. That's me, right? Now, what are we, are we supposed to identify with this man? So part of the answer is no, and part of the answer is yes. And let me give you the no portion first. I don't know everything about demon possession. There's a whole lot that I don't know and a little bit that I do know. And, and I tell you, one of the things I love about River Church is this is a place where we can figure it out together. Like I may be a little bit ahead in some areas and a little behind in others. I don't have to be perfect, but we can all kind of take this journey. So I'm trying to figure this out this week as I was researching and reading and studying and planning as well. But there's a whole lot that I don't understand about demons and, and demon possession and stuff, but there's some things that I do understand very concretely. And, the, and that is this, is that if you are a believer in Christ, then you cannot be demon-possessed, okay? So if you're walking here going, am I demon-possessed? If you are a Christian, the answer is no. Now, that doesn't mean that Satan doesn't try and attack you. That doesn't mean the demons try and affect your life and all that kind of stuff. But it means if you are a follower of Christ, you can't be demon-possessed. It says this in 1 Corinthians 6.19. It says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. We don't really put it this way, but essentially what that means is you are possessed by the Holy Spirit. So if you are possessed by the Holy Spirit, if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you cannot be possessed by a demon. So in that sense, it doesn't apply to us. We don't want to go, I just feel I'm the demon-possessed guy in this story, if you're a follower of Christ. But there is a helpful part of identifying with the demon-possessed guy in this sense. Is it, think about this guy's life. He was at a place in his life where he didn't have any answers. Like, he didn't know what to do. He probably didn't like being that way. He didn't want to be that way. The people in the town, they cared enough for him to try and subdue him. They cared enough for him to try and help him be better. But it was a helpless situation. It was a hopeless situation. And maybe that's how you feel. Maybe you're going through something in your life right now, just like this week or in this span of time in your life, and you're feeling hopeless, and you're feeling helpless, and in that way, the same way that Jesus entered into this guy's life and made a change, the same thing can happen for you. So let's keep going and see what happens. 
verse 6. It says, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And so what happens is Jesus arrives on the beach. The guy comes. The order is a little bit different based on what's going on here. But basically what happens is that he begins to cast this demon out. Right? Jesus says, come out of this man. And then the demon responds. Not the person, but the demon responds and says, please don't do that. I know who you are. I know who you are, Jesus, the Son of the Most High. Don't torment me. And so there's this conversation going on between Jesus and the man who's possessed by the demons, but it's really the demons who are speaking. Then it continues on in verse 9. It says, And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. So now we learn that it's not just one demon, but it's a multitude of demons. There's lots of demons in here. And a legion, and it's a reference to the Roman sort of way that they organize troops, but a legion is 6,000 people and 120 horsemen. Now, were there 6,000 demons in this man? I don't know. It doesn't say. Maybe. Maybe there was less a little bit later. Maybe it's 2,000 as we read on. But the point is, he's saying, I am legion for we are many. We have a stronghold on this man. Then it says this, verse 10. It says, And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. But a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Can you imagine this scene? So there's Jesus, and he sends the demons into these pigs. 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of pigs. And these pigs all go rushing down into the bank because the demons are now controlling them. And there's just this scattered, frantic thing going on, and they rush over, and they fall over into the sea. And I would imagine that as they're going down, once they all start going, even at the first picture, like, ooh, this is a bad idea, oink, oink, squeal, squeal, like they're getting slammed by all the pigs behind them, right? It's just a crazy scene that's going on. Now, I want you to remember something. You know, we sometimes put everything in our sort of 21st century, you know, mindset. But remember that when this story was told, it was originally told orally, you know, so the disciples would go out and they would reach people and they would tell the story of what happened. When the Gospel of Mark was written, when the Gospel of Luke was written, they would go and they would read it in a church setting. And I think that when they got to this part, about 2,000 pigs going into the ocean, I think that there was cheering that happened at that point. And here's why. Because when we talk about the Jewish culture, Jews were anti-pig, essentially. In other words, that there were laws in the Old Testament that said that you can't eat pigs. And I think that was actually God protecting them. It's not like God hates bacon, but God was protect. I love bacon. But God was protecting them 
from all the trichinosis and diseases in pigs. But he said, don't eat pigs. And so they kept their distance. They didn't farm pigs. They didn't sell pigs. They didn't transport pigs. And they certainly didn't eat pigs. They were anti-pig. And so 2,000 pigs go off the cliff and drown. They're like, woo, that's a celebration. Now, again, none of us are celebrating that because we love our pepperoni pizza and our sausage with our eggs in the morning. However, imagine this. Slightly different. This isn't what happened, but slightly different. Imagine that Jesus casts out the demons, and they go into 2,000 snakes that get killed. We'd be like, yeah! Or 2,000 spiders that get smashed. Yes, that's a great day. That's how they would have responded to this, and they're like, oh, yeah, and the guy got healed too. That's pretty nice as well. All right, so that's the scene that's going on here. Here's what happens next. This is verse 14. It says, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. You know, when somebody's life is transformed, it truly is an amazing thing. Like, think about, as you think about people in your own life, or maybe look at your own life, and you see somebody whose life was a total, complete train wreck in whatever way you would define that. And then Christ gets a hold of their life, and then they're a completely new and different person. You go, wow, that transformation is amazing. You know, and I've met people from time to time that I know them as followers of Christ, and they live out all the things that Christ is about, and they tell me about who they were before they met Christ, and I almost don't believe them because the transformation is so radical. That's what's happening here. The townspeople come out and they see this guy who before was naked and bleeding and couldn't be contained. He lived in the tombs and he lived in the mountains. That that was his whole life. And they see this incredible transformation happen in his life. And it says about them, it says the very last line of verse um, that I just read of verse 15 it says, and they were afraid. It says they were afraid. Why would it say that they were afraid? If you know the story of, the, of Jesus calming the seas, it says the same thing about the disciples. It says, and the disciples were afraid. You see, it wasn't fear as like, oh, I'm scared of you, that type of thing. No, it was fear of awe, like is this really happening? This kind of freaks me out. This is amazing. It says that they were afraid. And then it says this in verse 16. Seems as I get older, the little verse references get smaller. It says, um, And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they, became, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Why would they do that? I mean, here is Jesus, who clearly has the power to transform at least one guy's life from craziness to sanity. And they see that, and yet they say, please leave. It says they begged him, would you please leave? Just leave, get out. Why is that? Well, it doesn't say in here, but we can speculate, and most commentators agree that the reason that they wanted him to leave 
is because he, they felt like he was ruining their economy. So this is 2,000 pigs in a, in a pig herd, and they are all dead and drowned. And so those farmers, pig farmers, lose some of their livelihood. The people who slaughter the pigs lose some of their livelihood. The people who transport the pigs to wherever they go lose some of their livelihood. And so, like, would you just leave? Because you've already hurt the economy enough. You've hurt our pocketbooks. If you're going to hurt our pocketbooks, Jesus, we don't really want to have a whole lot to do with you. What's next? You know, are you going to get rid of the goats? Are you going to get rid of the, the sheep? And so they say, would you please leave? And Jesus only goes where he's welcomed. They said, we don't want you. He said, okay, I'll go somewhere else. Then it says this in verse 18. It says, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And the man climbed into the boat, leaving his family and followed Jesus, proclaiming in all of Judea how much Jesus had done for him. Is that what anybody's Bible says? Did anybody actually read that along with me? No, that's not what it says. It doesn't say he went with Jesus and lived happily ever after. This is what it says, verse 19. And it says, And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus not allow him to come? Just about every single story about people interacting with Jesus, when he, you know, a lot of the stories he invites people, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Other places he kind of chastised some people for making excuses for not following him. And so Jesus wants people to follow him, but in this case he says, no, stay here. I don't want you to come with me. And why is that? It's because of this line where he said, Tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you. I want you to go and proclaim the goodness of me, the goodness of God, the goodness of Jesus. Because the people had already said no thanks to Jesus. They said, we don't want you here, but yet this man can stay and proclaim the truth of this is who I was, and then I encountered Christ, and now I live like this. And they would see that. They would see that it wasn't just a blip that he went back to being nuts the next day, but that he was fully healed. And you know, the other thing I think that they probably recognized is I think they probably recognized that the value of a human life is worth more than 2,000 pigs. Yeah, it hurt their economy, but one life is worth way more than 2,000 pigs pigs. And they would have seen that as this man lived out his new life in their presence. So did it work? Verse 20. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. It absolutely worked. This man's life was changed and people saw that it was changed and they marveled at it. And I I wonder if maybe two or three or four years later, after Jesus died on the cross and then rose from the dead, did some people came, come to that area and share the gospel there? And they remembered this demon guy, this demon-possessed guy in his new life, and it went to help the gospel spread. 
So how do we apply this? I want to give us three applications, and I'll just go through these pretty quickly, but I want to give you three applications to think about, and maybe one will apply to you, or two, or maybe all three of them. Here's the first one, is ask Jesus for hope and help. Ask Jesus for hope and help. You know, there's, in this passage, we've got this guy who's feeling hopeless and helpless. And maybe that's you this morning. That you're in a place, you're not demon-possessed, but it sure feels like the weight of the world is on your shoulders. And I want you to know that there is hope. That whenever we come to Jesus, he helps us through our situations and our circumstances. And and sometimes he, he transforms it, and sometimes he takes it away, and sometimes he just walks through it with us. But in that, he is still giving us hope, and he is still giving us help. And maybe you've been trying to solve your problems on your own. Maybe you're trying to figure this way and that way out. And you need just to stop and say, I'm putting this before you, Jesus. I'm bringing this to you that you might give me hope, that you might give me help as I walk through life from this point on. Here's the second, is acknowledge the spiritual battle. Acknowledge the spiritual battle. Ephesians 6 says this, 6.12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know, you think about why would Satan want to attack? Why would this demon possess this guy? You thought about like, why, what's, the, what's in it for the demon? What's in it for Satan? And here's why Satan attacks us. And here's why demons possess people and demons attack people. is because God has designed us to live in relationship with him. God wants us to live holistically with him in every way. But what Satan wants, what these demons want, is they want to take away from that as much as they can. In any way that they can, they want to detract from us being the made and and living in the image of God. And so that's what happens with the demon-possessed man. The demon comes in and he cuts himself because that is not in the image of God. And he has the guy living in tombs in the countryside out away from community and other people. That's not how God wants us to live. And he takes that away as well. And so there's this spiritual battle that is going on in our lives. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. He wrote a book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He wrote another book called The Screwtape Letters. And in the preface to this, he says this. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And I just find that a great sort of balance We need to acknowledge that there is a spiritual war out there, that there are spiritual battles going on. But at the same time, don't become obsessed with it. You know, and sometimes we can do that. We can see the devil behind everything. We can see possession behind everything. How many of you guys, how many of you all remember the old Saturday Night Live sketch of the church lady? Okay, look it up. It's pretty funny. Uh, But this lady, you know, anything would happen, something bad, and she'd go, hmm, could it be Satan? And they would go on, they play on this thing, but there can be this thing like we see Satan behind everything. No, sometimes I'm just an idiot. It has nothing to do with Satan, right? 
but this idea of recognizing that there is a spiritual battle out there. Here's how it looks and happens in my life, is I feel like Satan tells me lies. Satan tells me lies, and I believe them for a time period until I don't, until I recall God's truth. And here's, I'll just give you two, but the other day in my time with God, um, I was reading The Temptations of Christ, and God gave me kind of maybe four or five of these lies that Satan tells me. But here's the first lie that I believe from time to time, which is this. Your life is not making a kingdom impact. And I believe that sometimes. And that's Satan lying to me. And you may look at me and go, how could you think you're not making an impact? I mean, you're a pastor. There's 2,000 people between Charleston and Taze Valley that call River Ridge Church their home or that come on a Sunday and probably thousands more of that that call it home. How can you say you're not having a kingdom impact? It's because that's the lies that Satan whispers to me. It makes me want to give up. It makes me want to quit. Oh, what's the point of this? And then God reminds me, no, that's a lie of Satan. The truth is that I'm using you in the ways that I want to use you. Here's another lie that Satan gives me, is your life is falling apart. Your life is falling apart. In other words, sometimes something will happen. I'll get an email, I'll get a phone call or a text or a conversation, and it'll just be hard. And whatever it is, is a bad thing. Whatever that is that affects my life, it's a small thing, but not a huge thing. But here's what I do, and maybe you do this too, is I take that thing and I make it huge. I make it gigantic, right? So now instead of just a bad email, it's that my life is falling apart, my family wants to leave, the church is terrible, and I have no money, and it's like my mind just goes there. And Satan goes, yep, I got him thinking about that instead of dwelling on what is good and what is of God. And then God reminds me, no, that's not true. Your life is not falling apart. I have you. I have you in my hands. Here's the third application, is tell your story. Tell your story. That's what he said to to this man. He said, stay here and say how much the Lord has done for you. And so I encourage you to tell your story, to be able to articulate, this is what God has done in my life. For you, that might be, when I received Christ, this is what happened, and you explain that. Or it could be there was a point later in life where you surrendered your life to Christ. You, li- you were a Christian, but you were kind of living, doing your own thing, and then you said, I submit it all to Christ. Or maybe there was a time in your life that was just hard and difficult, and God saw you through that. That's your story to tell. There's a verse in First uh, Peter that says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks for the reason or for the hope that is within you. If somebody came up to you and said, why do you go to church every Sunday? If somebody said, why do you read your Bible? If somebody said, why do you do nice things for people? Do you have an answer for that? Could you point to and say, this is why? And I would challenge you, if you don't know how you would answer that question, to figure that out, to write some things down. And, and by the way, if you're a person who is... Um, there are people, some of you, and this applies to probably a lot of you, that you grew up and you, you never really had a rebellious phase. You know, you accepted Christ when you are five, but it's not like you did drugs and, you know, saw prostitutes before that, right? Hopefully, right? That was a joke, okay. So, I mean, it's not, anyway, okay. So, but I say that because sometimes we look and it's like, I don't have a story to tell. I wasn't a crazy bad person like, you know, my brother or whatever, 
But here's the thing is what you can do is you can tell your story about how God rescued you from that. You can say, you know, I didn't live a crazy life, but I looked at the people around me and the stuff that they went through and God protected me from that. Maybe that's your story. But for all of us, our story is this. It says, how he had mercy on you. Every one of us has had God's mercy bestowed on us because of the cross of Christ. And I want to, if I think if we can do this, can we put up the last slide of the song um, that we sang at the very end of worship? It says this. It says, bear your cross as you wait for the crown. Tell the world of the treasure you found. And I think that so speaks to what we're talking about here because what we do is we live in this time where we sometimes feel hopeless and we feel helpless. We bear the cross while we wait for the crown. We wait for the great things ahead. But in the process of that, we tell the world of the treasure that we found. That's what it means to tell your story. You don't need to be able to articulate the gospel, although hopefully you'll get better at that. You don't need to be able to share the four spiritual laws or diagram the book of Romans. All that you need to do to start out with is tell your story. This is how much God has done for me and be able to tell it. I challenge you to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this passage and just how rich and full of life it is. God, I pray for us right now. I pray that you would come to those who are hurting, who need help, minister to their souls in this very moment. God, I pray that you would recognize when Satan attacks, that there is a spiritual thing going on that we don't always understand, um, but God, we want to follow you. And lastly, Lord, help us to tell our story. Give us opportunities today or this week to tell how much Jesus has done for us in the same way that this man was able to tell it day after day in his town. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.